When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. another cosmic salon and today I have my friend and yours Mr. Robert Phoenix. Robert is a regular in our speakeasy because he's my favorite astrologer to touch base with. We see him oh every six weeks to two months at least quarterly and has kept the salon rotating astrologically and helps everyone get their mind around what's just around the corner. And Robert has graced the marquee here and on my other shows with Jerry Cthulhu, Nox Mente and Obelisk. And Robert is, as everyone that knows Robert, is a virtuoso in what he does. He's His hit rate's extremely high, and there is a lot of respect in the field amongst peers with Robert. And as you may know from other shows that I've done with him, he has a very rock and roll kind of background, very renaissance, and has had his hand in all kinds of stuff, psychic work, journalism, all kinds of fascinating stuff and we're not going to dive too much into that because we've already done a whole show on all that so with that i'm going to bring on the man himself mr robert phoenix how are you uh i'm staying warm here in very chilly texas (laughs) but um i've got some good company and uh some good some good goodies to keep me on the warm side so I guess you had it all up. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I saw Texas is getting hit hard. You know, Robert, we over here in the Gorge area, the Columbia Gorge area where I am, close to Portland but not Portland, uh, we've been hit with one of these very strange extra deep freeze situations. We were in the teens. I lost power for a day. I've never lost power that long here. It's Cold here is usually 30 degrees. That's that's cold here where I am. Now, the mountains and stuff, that's a whole different situation. You're a native Californian. You understand this. However, this did not feel natural. This had a, uh, let's put it this way, an augmented vibe to it. And this situation, going down where you are, has an augmented vibe as well, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we've been dealing with the augmented vibe for a while. I mean, I think it's safe to say that the natural weather cycles, natural weather patterns on the planet have been interrupted. And you don't really have to be a conspiracy theorist to understand this because 
the United States Air Force has held patents on weather control for the past 50 years. And we know if they can do it, they will do it. And, you know, and then we get into all kinds of other, you know, more high tech, um, you know, weather modification, like harp and chemtrails. And by the way, the harp technology, if you go back and look at the original pictures of the harp field in Gakona, Alaska, which isn't even really functional right now, um, the U.S. Air Force got out of that. And I think they wound up, I think, selling it at a very cheap rate to the University of Anchorage so that they can actually use that as some kind of research tool. So if you go back, and uh, the analogy would be, if you go back and look at the computers of, say, uh, the 1970s, like the mid, early to mid-1970s, you know, there were these gigantic machines with you know, tapes that ran. And, you know, we know all the old pictures in the movies, right? And then now those machines are the equivalent of the black cube that, you know, you have in your hand. Um, the same thing has happened with HARP and the miniaturization of HARP. It doesn't take, you know, all those towers in a remote part of the world to do the same thing. So they've miniaturized all that. And those, those, um, those installations are ubiquitous because they're not very big and in many cases they'll actually look like giant golf balls right so some people may have seen some of these things kind of dotting the landscape every now and then and you might ask yourself well what is that is that a water tank or is that a water tower you know go a few levels deeper and you may be able to connect some dots so this is how and why weather modification is planetary and we know it's been weaponized just like the you know the the earth itself has been weaponized everything everything has been weaponized pretty much yes. um except for maybe our dogs and cats and who knows maybe they're <laughs> on the hit list i think they're but, starting in on those yeah i think they are too so that's why the weather has not been normal for a very long time and it's not just this you know, i mean i've been here in texas for 12 years and the pattern is we usually get at least two cold snaps uh, per, per, like, cold season, generally. Like, one right around now and maybe another in February or maybe a little bit earlier in December and maybe late January. So it's not really off, off script, uh, but it, it happened, like, very quickly. And, you know, we were at... Oh, I don't know, 40 degree nights and, and tomorrow night we'll be down to 18 or 16. So it happened pretty fast, but it's, I think it's, I think it's par for the course now. And, and I've been asking this question for a long time and maybe it, it speaks to either the resiliency of the earth or the plasticity of the earth. But at what point does the biosphere itself begin to um, reject or convulse on the sort of the synthetic manipulation of the systems? And I don't know the answer to that, although we're starting to see some earthquake action pretty significantly in Japan. I talked to our friend Masaki about it a little bit, and the devastation of the earthquake happened in a part of Japan that's not really populated. So it wasn't like it hit Kyoto or, or Tokyo or Osaka. Uh, and as a result, the Japanese have been very slow to kind of respond. Like, you know, if you go through Japan, there's a lot of really kind of old buildings. Once you get out of the urban areas, everything's kind of old and, you know, around from like the 20s or 30s or 40s. And when it goes, they just really don't do anything with it. It's not like they go in and say, oh, we got to rebuild this and build back better. They kind of just kind of let it go. So, yeah, we've had that. We've had um, some of the uh, really big stuff happen in Iceland. What was that about a month and a half ago, two months ago? So we're starting to get some activity on the sort of the geophysical side of things. I don't know. I just feel, it just feels like to me that at some point, and maybe maybe this place can handle a lot more. 
than uh, you know I'm aware of, or maybe it's just so malleable that it just kind of goes with whatever forces sort of govern it. I don't know the answer to that, but I've been just feeling at some point that there would be some kind of natural kickback on these things. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that, Nish? Well, first of all, Iceland just made the big news here the last couple of days because there's a new fissure going off and it's burning through a town over there. And I can't think of the name right now, but I was watching some live footage on that yesterday. It's pretty devastating. They say under the whole town is just a lava bed and it's just spewing up in little, I guess seeping is a better way. So houses are on fire, etc. And we see heavy snow and flooding in the deserts now. I'm talking the Middle Eastern deserts. And all the stop tornadoes in Florida, tornadoes out here, these are uncommon places for those. And just yeah. this amount of crazy weather that if you recall back some decades ago, Robert, that there used to be big events, yes, and we used to be able to chew on them longer. So like a big event that made the main news, at least nationally, but sometimes these international events would happen and we could chew the cut on that for quite a while. What's going on with it? Get involved in the drama of it. And what's happening now is it just seems like every week there's something major going on. And I'm just looking at the weather and the animal die-offs. I do think that we are looking at uh, heavy manipulation. And I'm wondering, and this is a ponder of mine, compounded energies. So when you start messing with natural cycles and natural ways, the way the precipitation works and all this, how much can the environment take before it starts to become erratic and to the naked eye, I guess, are seemingly chaotic it seems to me that it's really not global warming in the way that's being sold to us in the public via these people that I think are actually causing this. I do think this is weather modification. Of course, that mixes in with natural cycles, but I think, Robert, we are looking at compounded energies, how, you know, these things that create weather events have causalities and the causalities, I think, can be a little bit, well, unpredictable. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, as you as you were talking, um, you know, I was I was I was like tracking you in real time with what you were saying, and um, you know, it, it, yeah, of course, it, they went from global warming to climate change which was, it's so, climate change is so obtuse, um, and, <laughs> and bleak, right? And, yeah, and they are creating the climate change. They are, and, and it's all, you know, based on some form of, you know, negative compound interest that has to do with all these technologies that they're implementing to um, kind of alter, severely alter the biosphere. And last night I was talking about how in Iowa, they're running a carbon capture pipeline through the middle of the state. And they're using eminent domain in order to gain rights to that. So if you're a farmer, you would want a carbon capture. Um, it's basically what it looks like, because it looks like it's a, like a like a giant pipe, but it has these vents that uh, are connected to that pipe, and um, these vents are specifically designed to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Right, that's what they're built for, and they're putting these things all over the place. So, how is that going to, uh, you know, add up with the compound interest of? you know geoengineered skies and electrostatically charged skies via via harp right scale it's a scalar um and all these other things that they've got going now they they throw in a new wrinkle 
in their in their kind of mad plan to most likely bring about some kind of ecological devastation here. You know, and some people, and I, you know, it's not too far a river to cross to also look at this concept that the, that the realm is being terraformed for something other than human beings. Yes. Or, or something other than carbon-based beings, right? And, you know, that's got to have some kind of, kind of an impact on the instability of weather and our sort of, you know, geomagnetic properties and, and, and um, the earth itself. So, I mean, I think we're clearly on the same page here. And there is sort of the chaos that unfolds as a result of these systems uh, being implemented and the natural systems collapsing or being altered. And so there you go. There's your climate change. I've been wondering this. As an astrologer, are you able to track any of this as far as the proclivity to manipulate certain weather at certain times? Are there astrological signatures at all to any of this? Well, there clearly there are seasonal signatures. Um, we could look at longer astrological trends and have a discussion about that. But I, I began to notice, I started noticing chemtrails, I think, in 1997 is when I became really aware of them. And not only aware of them, but actually felt the effects of them. And it was like, this is not good. And, you know, I was, I was like one of those crazy people that would call the FAA and, and you know, just like, come on, what are you people <laughs> doing? And, and, of course, nobody was prepared or even remotely prepared to have that kind of discussion at the level that I was interacting or the, uh, the people that I was interacting with at a particular level. And so I just, I just gave up. I'm like, okay, you know. And then, of course, you know, that dovetailed with the whole Morgellon story and how the contents of the kind of original scrapes of chemtrails in the late 80s by Clifford Carnicom were matching some of the uh, elements that people were exhibiting with this thing called Morgellons during that time. So that became another very deep rabbit hole for me. But what I did notice was that in the Northern Hemisphere, essentially between late spring and early fall, the chemtrail activity would, would dissipate and there'd be less of it. And, and the reason for that is that they would move it to the Southern Hemisphere because it would be winter in the Southern Hemisphere, fall, winter, and they tend to uh, accentuate the spraying during fall-winter months because, number one, there's less UV light, so uh, there's a better chance that people will be just less healthier due to lack of vitamin D. Number two, they have more cloud cover generally during the winter months. Uh, some clear, cold winter days, you can uh, occasionally, you know, you can see them. Actually, more than occasionally, you can see them. So it's all predicated on concentrating uh, the, the spraying with the greatest amount of seasonal effects. As far as astrology goes, we're, we're going to be coming into a period of time in late 2025, early 2026, where for three years, until we get to 20, uh, 2029, late 2020, early 26, until we get to uh, late 29, where for three years, there will be no ground or earth elements in the outer planets. So what that, the outer planets would be Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. If, and so if you, if you go through all of those, particularly with Saturn and Neptune, both enter the sign of Aries at the end of 2025. Uh, the end of 2025, Uranus enters the sign. 
of Gemini, and then Pluto will have already been in Aquarius. So if you look at those outer planets, what do you get? You get Saturn fire, Uranus air, Neptune fire, Pluto air. So air fire, like there's no water there. There's no Earth there. And I think if we look at it from, you know, a climatological perspective or an environmental perspective, I think it's horrible. I mean, what do you get when you get air and fire? That's what you get. You get fires, you get extremely hot temperatures, it's an intemperate environment. Uh, there's, there, and I could see where it would not be out of the stretch, even though we do have a Jupiter transit through Cancer. It would not be out of the stretch to experience a massive global drought mm. during that time. Water would be such a, a huge commodity. And, and the, the consequences on the environment itself, not just human life, but the environment itself, vegetation, crops, uh, animal life. I mean, it could be absolutely apocalyptic if you just follow the elements of the outer planets. Yes. So that's one of the reasons why these upcoming three years are, in my estimation, going to be three of the hardest years in recent recent history, maybe the last 200 years. Who knows? It, it, these next three years could rival the three years of almost any other time on this planet. And Robert, it certainly feels like we're moving into that kind of energy just on an energetic level. It's almost like our outer bodies, our biofields are aware that this is just around the corner. Yeah, I mean, it does feel that way. It's been feeling that way for a while, but I feel like more and more people are feeling it. I mean, I think that's the difference. Yeah. And you know, people like yourself and who listen to your podcast, uh, who listen to my podcast, highly sensitive individuals with uh, great antennae have been feeling this for a while. We're the kind of the first line of defense in some ways. And yes. you, you know, as, as it moves through layers of density to other people, they're starting to pick up on it. And, you know, that results also in very strange human behavior. Um, and as much as there's other things, I think, creating those scenarios. But I think we can expect more of that as really strange and bizarre and chaotic and, um, you know, just uncontrollable. Like human behavior, maybe human misbehavior would be the better term for it. I think we're just going to see a lot. <laughs> That. A lot more, a lot more of the crazy is coming. Yeah, it's amping, and it's interesting to me to note, and I do think this is in individual, uh, I guess, astrological signatures as well. The people that are not really noticing anything, the world just looks the same to them, and there's a coincidence here and there, or maybe a lot, but they just are not going to dig any further. And I'm one of these people where you meet people where they are, you talk to people where they are, and you don't force anything on them. They, it's it's no use. But it is interesting to note the amount of people that still feel like the world is as it always was with a few dinks here and there. Yeah, I mean, it's easy, I think it's easy to... Um, you know, participate in that kind of reality because there there are enough things that are like anchors that remind you that, well, you know, this thing is here and this thing is here and this thing is here and it's always been here and it's kind of doing this thing at the same time that it normally does this thing. Like, for instance, you know, the NFL playoffs are happening now. Well, they always kind of happen around this time of year. Right. Although we did have a major kind of weather situation in Buffalo, New York, where the school marm governor had to change the day of the football game. But that's another story. <laughs> but, you know, there are there are things that are that have the semblance of 
consistency and anchors and relative coherence. But if you, you know, scratch a, a, a few layers deeper, you know, you'll, you'll find that that's not really true and that things are rapidly changing before our very eyes. Uh, McDonald's just debuted its newest automated McDonald's. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of a big deal. I think it is. Yes. <laughs> I mean, how do you think McDonald's is going to survive in California when they're paying people $20 an hour? That's easy. They're just, they'll just get rid of the people. Yeah. It, it feels Hegelian to me, actually. And then, yeah, but still, like, at what level does it become disruptive for people? Because they'll still be able to go to McDonald's. They'll still be able to go get their Big Mac or their Quarter Pounder with cheese or their Happy Meal. Right? I mean, it's like, oh, well, there's all these robots. But look, I can still get this. So the world must be okay. The world is still going on the way that I needed to because I can still get my McDonald's. <laughs> despite you know, the changing of the food itself. And despite the change of the food itself, as long as it comes in the package that they're familiar with and the shape that it's familiar with and the wrapping paper that it's familiar with and it tastes reasonably the same, nothing changes. Yep, I agree. This is what makes this feel dark or um, uncanny. I think uncanny is the word these days because it really kind of takes it into that other space, but it's still attached to the reality of consensus. Yes. Yes, very much. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Let's do a little backup here. You have, as I mentioned earlier, you're a renaissance man. You've had your foot in a lot of things. And we've talked about all that stuff in another show here in the, the salon for sure. I think the first time you're on the Maquis. But I want to talk about the way you use, and I believe this wholeheartedly, great oracles, whether we're talking about astrology or even tarot reading, whatever it is, have something extra to them that helps synthesize information. And a lot of times it's easier to conceptualize that under the template of intuition. Now you are known for this. You worked as a psychic and a pragmatic psychic, looking at cycles and stuff that's obvious to people that are uh, antennae type people and you can you can put patterns and therefore you know make predictive ideas through great tools but you have a deep well of intuition and how does that inform this work you do in this period of your life which is namely astrology yeah i mean i think that's a that's a really good question um I think astrologically, the intuition uh, from from a, so there, there's different ways that I interact with astrology. I interact with it on a client level, and then I interact with it on what's called a mundane level, which takes astrology and kind of you know looks at the world uh, and looks at some of these cycles and patterns, etc. From an individual perspective, it has a lot to do with who I'm working with in that moment and that there would be from the, from the jump an intuitive approach for that individual. So whatever is happening um, in the etheric between me and the other person, I'm already establishing kind of an intuitive approach uh, when we start the process. And I, I can't articulate that. It's just what I'm feeling with that person and where I need to go and what I need to focus on. And then there's, you know, the leaps that take place with any oracular tool that they can be read, you know, symbolically. And there's usually a correct interpretation for that. But then there's the leaps that are used 
as like a point of departure with the system. And that's where the intuition kicks in. And it's very different than like how astrology affects my brain is very different than say how, how tarot affects my brain. And I would say of the two systems, tarot is the more intuitive by far. Yes. And I, and I, and I, you know, I could probably make some educated guesses as to why, but there is a type of calculus with astrology that you have to, you have to use a certain part of the logical brain, you know, to look at things from a position of angularity or degrees or distance. So that automatically puts you into a certain part of your brain. When using Tarot, you don't really need that. What you have to understand is the basis and the foundation of the cards and what position they're in. And then from that point, the really good Tarot readers can take off and, and go into some very psychic places. And when I, when, when I was doing the psychic hotline stuff, that's where I would go. It was really cool. I mean, but it was a period of time. I had Neptune transiting my, my second house. So I was essentially making money by being, by being an intuitive. And um, the, the process around that was really cool. Like I could describe where people lived and I could describe where, what their husbands looked like. And, you know, it was just an ability to sort of, you know, drop, um, I don't know, just kind of drop the filter in some ways and then trust, you know, whatever instinctual or intuitive uh, impulse was coming up. And, and I think that that's ultimately true for everybody if they want to practice or be in touch with that more. Some people are kind of overly psychic and overly intuitive and they can't control it and it, it will happen in ways it's you know that that is that could be almost catastrophic to them you know this is where people begin to have really difficult times with reality yes and those are different challenges they have to figure out how to filter it uh, whereas other people if they're interested in exploring that they have to figure out how to cultivate it and you can't cultivate it. And different people have different sensors. Not everybody's the same. So on a personal level with astrology, it, the approach is intuitive from the position of me with that other person. And what, what, what approach am I going to take during that time together? And then through the reading, there will be certain points of time where it's like, okay, I'll go off script or I'll, fo I'll follow an impulse, whatever that impulse is. From the mundane perspective, we're looking at cycles, we're looking at, at hunches. And, and there is, I think, uh, a highly developed form of intuition that is based on putting information together in a very condensed and very rapid way so that the individual can make these leaps, but those leaps aren't appearing out of sort of just, you know, dark space. Those leaps are kind of erected on columns of experience and um, maybe highly developed knowledge in certain areas. And it's like I had a, a, a webinar two weeks ago for my members and I threw out some predictions for 2024 and some of that, most of them weren't even astrological. I was just going on. I'm just like, okay, these are my instincts and this is what I think is going to go down. But one of them was based on this kind of burgeoning uh, sense and accumulation of information around a particular individual. And at the, it was like my, my big shocker at the end of the webinar. And I uh, predicted that Nikki Haley would be the next president of the United States. Oh my. And there's, there's reasons for it. 
Um, some of it is astrological. Some of it would be sort of ontological and data-driven. And then the third part would be the instinctual and the leap. And all three of those kind of went into determining that she would be the next president. Does that answer your question? Yeah, in a beautiful way. And I love the example there. Let's look at this a little deeper. So when you're looking at charts of people, so what are these factors in a chart that would say, give someone the idea of gifted for the work as far as psychic work or seeing through the veil, this kind of liminal antennae kind of space. Are there signatures in a chart where you can see that? Or is this based on transits? What are we looking at when we're trying to pull that out? Yeah, I mean, mean, you know, every chart is obviously incredibly different i mean even twins have different charts because their rising sign is not going to be at the same degree it might be you know you know 10 minutes later 15 minutes later right and so their charts won't even be exact carbon copies of each other it'll be a slight difference yeah everybody has you know vastly different charts and of course in astrology we look at uh, elements like water and air as being sort of the psychic superchargers in terms of charts. So if people have heavy water in their chart, I think they have a potentially tremendous psychic potential. But it's interesting in, in that some people, you know, when I bring it up, some people will feel perhaps a bit alien to that, particularly on the water side. And other people will completely resonate with it. And I think the people that may not relate to it as easily on the water side, I kind of use this fish in a fishbowl kind of uh, metaphor, that that's just the world they live in. And they don't necessarily see anything different about it. Like a fish doesn't know it's in a fishbowl, but it is. And there are other people who will acknowledge that and say, yeah, well, this happens and this happens. You know, so usually, you know, we look at like, you know, Mercury, you know, where's Mercury in the chart? Does Mer- is Mercury in a water sign? If so, what's the water sign? What degree is the water sign? What decan is it in? Which house is it in? What's it doing with other planets? Because Mercury is how we mentally perceive things. And it's not always the best in the water signs, but it can be interesting for sure. It's certainly powerful in Scorpio and has a a very strong, I think Mercury in Cancer is extremely potent. The challenge with Mercury in Cancer is to sort out the feeling function from the thought. And for some people that can be that can take a while and and dealing with sense of high high degree of sensitivity. Uh, so that's how I, I that's the first place I would look. Um, I'd look at some other factors like what's Neptune doing? Where's Neptune in the chart? What's it interacting with? Uh, and in some cases, you could have some net, like say, for instance, let's say you have uh, Neptune in Scorpio in your chart. So if you were born sometime during the 1960s, you would have Neptune in Scorpio. But let's say you had Mercury in Virgo. Well, it would set up a sextile to Neptune. And we, all, we know that Neptune, the ruler of Pisces, is more watery, more fluid. Um, to use a term that you like, more liminal. And then Mercury in Virgo tends to be pragmatic, rational, deliberate, and yet with the sextile, because they'd be operating at a 60-degree angle, that the individual would have the opportunity to explore that area, meaning that they would be, that's that's how sextiles work. It's like if you have a sextile in your chart, it's an entree. It's like, here, try this out. If you try this out, you might get something out of it. 
But if you don't try it out, it's sort of like, well, you're not going to get the full experience, or you know, it's a it's an opening. Whereas trines um, are a given. Like you can just step into the trine; it's part of you. You're it's you're good at it. It, it. You know, it naturally flows. But we need to learn new things in this lifetime. So the new things on the harmonic side would be the sextiles. Um, the new things on the dissonant side would actually be the squares, because we're supposed to deal with that that conflict, the dynamic conflict in our lives, and to work with that in some ways. So I would look at you know aspects to Neptune. Sometimes aspects to Pluto can be um, deeply psychic or intuitive, but it's not always a given. It could also result in somebody who is insanely obsessed about certain things. And if it's the, the Mercury function, you know, it will be an obsession to learn about something until they find out everything about it. And so if they want to learn about psychic, psychic work or psychic perception or intuition, and they go after it, they'll find something. They'll find something. They'll go deep enough and they'll, they'll you know, they'll find the sort of the hatch to the underworld in some ways. That's kind of what I'm looking at in terms of charts. Air signs operate, I think air signs are very intuitive, but they operate differently. I mean, I think all the signs tend to be intuitive, but they operate differently. But I think the two most intuitive would be water and air. Air signs are like a radio antenna, and they pick up on things very, very quickly. Yeah. And like it's like a signal that is flitting through sort of the the mind space and if they can capture that signal then they can get relevant information but but i think the processes happen differently that's not to say that people that have heavy earth can't be intuitive they can it's just going to show up differently and they may experience their intuition more with their body than say a radio signal in their brain or trying to sort out this weird kind of imagery in a dream or a reverie or just this overwhelming sense of the embodiment of somebody or something else that I think water science have to go through. So um, earth people can be intuitive, but I think they're just going to process They're going to have kind of a more intuitive relationship with the natural world or with the earth. And maybe they can feel things like impending weather changes. Uh, so I think that there's the you know, intuition is part of the entire astrological experience. But I think those two elements have the sort of the fastest, easiest access. Well, fire and air still have it. They just experience it differently. And, you know, fire um, is very interesting in terms of the intuitive process because it, it burns hot, right? So I think the brighter or the more incandescent of uh, the individual that's born under a fire sign, they're all different, right? They're all very, like, like the difference between a Sagittarius and an Aries, even though their fire signs are vast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're vast but if they're incandescent and they're burning hot they just instinctually know things and you know an Aries would instinctually know kind of what to do or what direction to go in and where to, where to assert their energy you know if a Leo is incandescent you know their intuitive potential I think would be engaged in creativity and would find itself in art in a lot of ways. You know, like the, all, the greatest actors are Leos and Pisces. So when you get a, a great Leo actor, you know, they're able to, I think, intuitively take on, you know, the role of whoever it is that they're playing, which again, I think is an intuitive process. And not all, not all Leos are, are, are you know, gonna be great actors. But they are, you know, I would say by and large, it's very rare that I haven't met a Leo that's creative. And um, they can do that. And so I think their intuition 
gets channeled in a different direction. And then with Sagittarius, there seems to be this connection with uh, intuition and what I would call maybe psychic perception with the higher mind. And I think Sagittarius has that ability to follow these intuitive and instinctual threads into the realm of wisdom and higher knowledge, which I think is a very interesting kind of way to operate. Yeah. You know, and your and anybody that has strong Sagittarian influence in their chart may be able to attest to what I'm talking about. That if you follow these intuitive hunches or these intuitive um, kinds of um, thrusts, the next thing you know, you're 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 breaking through to a new plateau, and you know you see an entirely different model of the cosmos. I feel like that's how it works the best for for Sagittarian people. So I think all the signs have their own version of it, but the water signs and the air signs. I think have the most immediate access through a variety of their mediums. I can say that some of my greatest teachers have been older Sagittarian women. And whereas they can be like kissing a Mack truck, which one of my friends was described as that was very influential in my life. For some reason we gelled and I learned so much from her. And as you're talking, I was thinking about like my particular Leo moon, uh, Gemini rising and how my intuitive gifts really come through and get more expressed in a deeper, concise way through arts. I think this is why I've just done everything, been in so many different art schools, and everything's an expression of art for me. Even the way I throw together these podcasts, I you know, I do them in an artful way. And that made a lot of sense to me. I will say, though, that I have bowed down to our Piscean psychic beings but they seem more delicate and this proclivity towards and i know it's a cliche robert i know it is but it is for a reason i have just seen so many of them dive into addiction because the pat once you know as anyone knows it's dealing with deep intuitive or psychic forces once the channels open and you have the information flowing in, sometimes it's overwhelming, and especially those gentle Pisceans. Yeah, I think they're incredibly psychic. And, the, you know, I've, I've said this a lot about Pisces, is that you line up 100 Pisces, and I'll show you 100 different people. Yeah. Uh, and there, there could be some commonality and some themes to them. But they're all going to be extremely different. The one, one commonality that they'll all have, though, is sensitivity. And even ones that come off as being insensitive, they're just using their insensitivity as a shield in a lot of ways. Yeah. And you'll run that with certain Piscean people. Um, yeah. And, and, and like Leo... They're also highly creative. I've never met a Piscean person that's not creative and artistic. And they, those are the two, to me, those are the two best actors of the Zodiac yeah. are Pisces and Leo. Not to say that there aren't other great actors under other signs. It's, it's interesting that two of the uh, great action actors of the say, 1960s and to, to a certain extent, the 70s, were James Garner and uh, Steve McQueen. Yes. Both, both <laughs> of them were Aries. They were both Aries. <laughs> and James Garner and Steve McQueen both raced cars. Yeah, Steve McQueen right? was so sexy. And, and Steve, Steve McQueen lived down the road from James Garner. <laughs> and he used, to give, he used to give James Garner shit. Because <laughs> I think 
whoever Steve McQueen was with at that time said that they found James Garner to be attractive. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aries in general tend to be attractive people. I mean, I don't know what it is. It's something I've noticed. I know it's a cliche also, but there's something to it. And it may, it doesn't have to play out in, say, traditional, whatever that is, for whatever culture we're talking about, in the, whatever that is. It's an energetic, I find, and when I say attractive, it's something like magnetic with them. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, theoretically, the idea behind somebody who would be an Aries, and again, you'd have to look at the entirety of their chart, was that there would be a sense of integration. Like, well, you know, James Garner knew who he was. He knew who he was. How do people not find that attractive? I agree. Right? And even somebody like Marlon Brando, who's also an Aries, Marlon Brando knew who he was. Yeah. And he was a wild son of a bitch. <laughs> and but he knew who he was. And how could not, that not be attractive? <laughs> the true rebel. While we're here, because we're going to get into uh, something a little different in the second half, but while we're here, what is the significance of the 2911 thing? What's going on with that, Robert? The degrees. Oh, well, the 29th degree, if we're going to talk about those two degrees, the 29th degree is really the one to talk about. I mean, to me, the 11th degree is really just the second and a half degree of the second decan. But the 29th degree is called the anoretic degree. And it is the final degree of the sign. And by the time the sign reaches the 29th degree, there's no, there's no juice in it. There's nothing left. And there are a number of ideas about how this affects the individual so um some of the uh straight astrological ideas are well you got unfinished business with the sign and you had to come back and finish it up and that could be true um another part of it this has been my experience with the 29th degree although i think i've gotten better with this over time is that what's characteristic of people that have the anoretic degree is that they will go down a certain path for a period of time and then they will just abandon the path, whatever that is, for whatever reason, some of which they can justify and others are maybe unjustifiable. But that's a challenge because it's, it's like they don't, they don't have the ability to completely finish something off. Now, who knows? There could also be kind of a fail-safe mechanism built into that because a couple of those times, that that actually saved me. But other times, it would have been better if I had gone through with it or followed the the course of action that I had set out to do. Uh, What makes it tough is that a lot of people that that have the 29th degree are usually born on the 22nd of a month. Not always, but usually. So when you look at it from a numerological perspective, the number 22 plays a a really huge role in the person's life. It's the number of the master builder. So that person usually has a sense that they're here to do something significant. Like they're not just here to toil and labor. But the the kind of uh, paradoxical part of it is that if they're born on the 29th degree which in, you know basically breaks down to 11 which is half of 22 they're supposed to finish their mission with like no energy left in their sign so it's really kind of an interesting conundrum because the 22 has such great potential but in many cases a lot of people have that 29th degree, which which makes it a bit more challenging. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting degree to be born on. And then even sometimes with houses, we can look at the, the 29th degree on the cusp of the first house or the fourth house or, you know, the seventh house, the ninth, the uh, tenth house, and we can begin to make some of those interpretations 
as well. Um, yeah, there's just no, there's no energy left. And a lot of times for, for me in my chart, you know, I'll wind up kind of meandering over to my Libra planets, which are on the other side of the sun. And I have Mercury, I have a Mercury moon conjunction, which is another indicator of intuition yeah. in the chart. Right. So I have that in my chart. So I also have Venus and Libra and I tend to gravitate towards more Libra. If any, you know, you'll ask anybody that's ever lived with me, they'll tell you I'm not a Virgo. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's what happens. It's like, Oh yeah, I'll go hang out and do all this Libra and shit. And all of a sudden it's like, no, you gotta go be a Virgo. You have to show up here. You have to be on <laughs> You have to pay your bills. You have to show up at that court date. Right, all, 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 those, all those gnarly. Oh, you have to take care of your body too. You just can't go out and you know eat rich food and and you know have the best liquor in your system. Oh no, you can't do that. You've got to, you've got to take care of your body. So yeah, I mean, it's an interesting degree. I'm not sure I'd wish it on anybody to be honest with you. But it's what's funny is that when you go into the first part of uh, a sign you know the energy is real intense because it's fresh and you know i went through all these all, all these lists of uh, you know serial killers you know noted killers and clearly there seems to be an emphasis on virgo pisces gemini and sagittarius in terms of killers that's not to say that there aren't killers of other astrological signs because i've been able to prove that and Scorpio and Capricorn kind of head the list outside of those signs. But what I noticed about the Virgo killers is that they were, they were all early Virgo. All early Virgo. So I guess if I had to choose between early Virgo and late Virgo, I'll take late Virgo. <laughs> so when... <laughs> I, this is why for people that think astrology is just flat, there's so many avenues to explore, decans, and it, there's so much there. There's so much juice. And if we could, what would you think would be the most auspicious? And I know saying the most is kind of like platitude, but the most auspicious thing to work with. And now I say auspicious, and I mean it kind of in the truer sense where it's harder Harder thing to work with when you see it in a chart, you're like, oh, man. And possibly do you even, I'm not saying this about you, but when you see some of these hard things, it's like, how do I say this to a client or even a friend? You know, what what is like a really gnarly thing to see in a chart? I had a client just recently um, who was fascinating on a number of levels and i didn't really know this person but i could tell that the that the chart was somebody who was quite interesting and they had a stellium of planets in pisces and the stellium was uh, sun venus and mars and they were all those three planets were in the sixth house so this person was uh, a healer which you would expect with somebody who has like a sun sixth house uh, position because that's usually where it would you know there's a really good chance that people who have sixth house real estate are going to be healers on some some level or she's an acupuncturist and she had um neptune squares with all those planets which is really really rough like anytime you get into a neptune square um it, it it is quite debilitating so for instance a neptune sun square would flatten somebody's uh confidence and self-esteem if they ran into uh sort of repeated situations where they're on the short end of the stick and then once that snowball goes rolling downhill, it's very hard to stop. So, you know, based on that, you know, people make life choices. 
that aren't always in their best interest. You throw in the, the Mars square with Neptune, which 90% of the time I've seen in charts, we'll throw 95%, represents addiction with a Mars-Neptune square. Whatever the addiction is, it could be anything. It could be relationships, it could be sex, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be porn, whatever. Like it, it, there, there is a, this sense that this person can't control their actions. And usually they need something in order to kind of keep going because Mars is all about the ability to act. And then Venus Neptune squares are, you know, all about enabling codependent relationships, um, high degree of empathy that degrades into the manipulation of others or by others. So she had the great, she had the, the, you know, the trifecta with all three. And, you know, that's really hard to talk about in a lot of ways. There was also a much more complex sort of piece in her chart where she had Pluto on her ascendant. And there's a thing in astrology called an inconjunct, which is where um, you have planets that are at a 150-degree angle, and they have to be within a three-degree orb. So I believe uh, Mars and the Sun, which were conjunct and in close proximity, were part of that in conjunct, which meant that in order for her to be successful, she would go through these deeply cathartic experiences to figure out how to bring, like that's the back end, right? Like Mars and the Sun, which is her identity and her ability to act in the world had to be it has to find its way it has to migrate across the charts so that it could have an impact on this intense plutonian influence so for you know for layman's terms to be like well you have to take these two really deeply fundamental aspects and then you have to bring them forward in your life so that in like a union sense that the individual would be integrated and and that's not easy to do you know that's all that's a lifetime of work and especially if you're dealing with pluto on the ascendant because every now and then in order for that to happen you're going to have to rip the band-aid off with pluto right you're gonna you're gonna have to burn the house down every now and then hopefully only once or twice in a, in a very meaningful way in order for those latent, you know, abilities and just capacity to move forward. So she occupies, you know, the first house, which is her ascendant. And then with Libra rising, it's very easy for a lot of Libra rising people to get by in the world because most of the time they look good. Um, and then they've mastered the art of being polite. Yeah. Because that's how the rising sign operates. So to me, there was a lot of inherent challenges uh, in this chart. And, you know, finding out a way to talk about them. Uh, and that's the intuitive thing, you know. So that's like, okay, well, what, okay, we're doing the math in my brain. And how does this look? And how does it feel? And that's kind of where I go. It's like, how does it feel? Like, how does it feel to be in this other person's experience? And then I think I can better operate and communicate from that place. She had some other stuff in her chart that was really good. Like, she had a, a Mercury-Pluto trine, which I talked about earlier. So she'll get to the bottom of things. She'll find things out. She had Uranus sextiling a lot of her, uh, a lot of her Libra planets, which could help her get through things very quickly you know, kind of leave the past behind. So, you know, you, you hope to speak to the totality of the individual through the experience of the chart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for this, because there's a lot of questions I know people have, they think and they wonder, and sometimes 
I keep noticing that people are afraid to ask for the dark elements in their chart so they can see the challenges. And if you don't ask, you don't find out. So as we are going to move into this, the second half of this, as we kind of started out with this, with looking at the weather and kind of the trajectory of where things are going in the collective outside of us, we're going to dive into astrocartography, and I know you offer this as a service as well. You're a full-service kind of guy, and so I know you are, and well-respected for it. And so nothing has been more poignant for a lot of people right now that are thinking about this because of possibly the, the, the changes in weather around them or if they're sensing Politically, they want to be in a different state that's aligned with different values, whatever it be, if it's the end of the world, whatever. This is where understanding astrology through place, your astrology in the map is a very powerful tool. And so we're going to move into that part of the conversation now. All right. Are you ready? Let's go. I want to thank the producers of this show. Cass, Mother Goose, Claire Cathcart, Denise Bissell, Eggtooth, Liz Radikin, Inky, Eric Peterson, Heather, Jake Vanek, Kate Kukulkan, Carrie, Laura Dunn, Lila Marie, Lynn Radius, Marcy Shapiro, Mark Betcher, Melanie Poe, Mia Bell, Myra, Neil McNaughton, Noelle Jeanette, Pamela Hodal, Rod Knight, Sarah Etta, Stephen Mercer, Susan Jenkins, Susan Miller, Wise Night Owl, Lady Babs, our moderator, and Meredith that runs the socials out there, the website, and does all the bookings. Meow Face Killer on Instagram. I want to thank all the other patrons that come through Patreon or support in other ways with your time and energy, with your vibrations of love and your open hearts and open minds. Thank you very much for being here and spending time, the most valuable of assets in the realm of time. The dreamer loves the dream. The dreamer feeds the dream. The dreamer awakens within the dream. Thank you for dreaming here with me in the Cosmic Salon.